I have to be honest and tell you how good it is to be back with you here and be a part of a family of faith. As you know, for the last two weeks, Marsh and I have been out in Portland being a part of General Conference. General Conference happens once every four years. It's where delegates who are elected from all over the world come together in order to do the work, the business of the United Methodist Church. It turned out that we were gathering in Portland this time. There were 848 delegates. We all gathered out there to do the business of the church. Fascinating thing is more than 40% come from outside the United States. They come from Scandinavian countries and from Europe. They come from Russia and the Philippines and Africa, all over the world. And we come together to try to deal with the important issues that are going on in the church. It's a pretty brutal schedule. Every day I was up before 6 o'clock in order to be there on the floor at the convention center between 7.30 and 8 o'clock. We would begin our business and it would run till 6.30 to 7 o'clock. And then you'd go out to dinner with people in order to talk about legislation and what do we need to do tomorrow. You usually get home to your hotel 9.30 to 10 o'clock, fall into bed, and then turn around and do it all over again. They gave us off Sunday. That was it for those two weeks. So it's a, it's a brutal schedule. We dealt with all kinds of interesting and important things. One of the things that came up was, should we change um, how bishops get to serve. Right now when they're elected, you serve for a lifetime. And they said, should we do it to where you serve for eight years and go back to the church? It received more than 50% of the vote, but you had to have two-thirds to pass, and so it was rejected. We dealt with a petition that was asking our board of pensions um, in order to divest from all companies that produce gas, oil, natural gas, coal. We beat that one back. We didn't pass that one either. We dealt with human sexuality. In the end, we asked our bishops if they would go away and form a task force, a small group, to come back and present a plan to us on how we can go forward, but that won't happen for three or four years. It really was a conference, I guess, when I left on this one that I didn't feel like we did anything real significant. Nothing really changed. Everything kind of stayed the same. We passed a budget so we could operate. We reaffirmed our mission, which is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. We had worship in the morning and at night. There were moments of great inspiration There were moments of pain with demonstrations. It's a very interesting experience with all the legislation that's going on. And it's it's more like the United Nations. Because you have legislation and you have these people speaking all these different languages. Everybody receives a wireless receiver and headsets. And if someone's speaking in English, it was easy for us. But for much of the delegations... They had to have on the headsets for interpretation, translation. And then whenever one of them stood up to speak in Portuguese or Swahili, my Swahili wasn't so good. And so you're throwing on your headsets to hear it translated for you. And that's how we conducted our business. And so it really is fascinating to come together as this worldwide church. 
all these different people from around the world representing the body of Christ. And I, I know what an honor and a privilege it is to do that, to get to represent Oklahoma. This is my fourth time to get to go to General Conference. I never take for granted that I will be elected to ever go again. I was sitting there on the General Conference floor and thinking about the significance of this moment, I got to be honest, I started thinking about all the people who blessed me in my life. All the people down through the years who have helped me to get to where I am and to get to be a part of such a significant moment. I was sitting there on the conference floor and I started thinking about Richards, Texas. It's the first little church that I went to go serve when I was 19 years old. Richards, Texas is a town of 200. Our little church had have an average attendance of maybe 40. And I got to thinking about Isabel Lenormand. Isabel Lenormand, she was the organist. And what a neat lady. She was so good to me. Every Saturday night, Marsh and I were engaged when I first went there. Every Saturday night, Marsha spent the night with Miss Lenormand so she could be at church on Sunday morning. I got to thinking about Hillman Urey. I mean, Hillman Urey was in his 60s. He was retired. He was chairman of the board. I was 19. He was in his 60s. He seemed so old. <laughs> I remember thinking how old Hillman was in those days, and I was amazed at all the energy he had and the things he could do. I mean, Hillman and I were hanging up off ladders and painting the church together. I asked him, would you be my associate pastor? So he read the scriptures on Sunday morning and helped lead the singing. Hillman was such a blessing in my life. I loved Hillman Urey. I got to thinking about Charles Allen. I grew up at First Methodist Church. Charles Allen was the only senior pastor I ever knew, preaching on Sunday mornings. There were lots of other pastors I loved through the years who were there at the church, but he was the only senior pastor my entire life till I became a minister. Kind of like for Josh Attaway. Growing up here and going out. No, that, that was my experience. And I, Charles Allen, we were on ABC television in those days, just as we are here now in Oklahoma City. And Charles Allen stood up on the day before, or the Sunday before we were going to Richards and announced, Bob and Marsh are going to Richards, Texas. And I didn't realize that all the people up in Richards, Texas watched Charles Allen every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. And man, did they ever get excited when they heard that Charles Allen's boy, he's coming out here to be our pastor. I had instant credibility. And when I got there and I saw how much they loved Charles Allen, I called him and said, would you come preach sometime during the week? I had no idea what I was asking out of such a busy man. But he and his wife, Leah, came. They came. And that night the Methodists came, the Baptists came, the Catholics came. We packed that church. A night I'll never forget. I sat there on the floor thinking about how grateful I was to him. It was a very meaningful time as I sat there and went through the list in my mind of so many that I would remember and give thanks. They had helped to bring me to this moment. I think that's what Paul was doing when he was writing this letter to the Thessalonians. Now you remember your history. 
book in the book of Acts, you'll go back and read how Paul and Silas and Timothy had been in Philippi. They managed to start a church there with Lydia. But then there was opposition and they were forced to flee and they left town and came to Thessalonica. And when we took a trip from here years ago now at St. Luke's, we went on the journeys of Paul. We went to Greece and we went to Thessalonica, though today it's called Thessaloniki. And it is the second largest city in Greece, a thriving city, a seaport. It's a wonderful place to go visit. Well, it's now several thousand years old. It was a thriving port city back in Paul's day. And so Paul came to Thessalonica. It says, he and Silas and Timothy went to the synagogue for three Sabbaths and there Paul argued from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ and he had to be crucified and raised from the dead. And many people heard and believed, not just Jews, but Gentiles. They were God-fearers. That is, they were people who were looking for one God They were worshiping or coming with the Jews, though they were not Jewish. When they heard Paul, they too came, and this new community of faith was created, a family of faith. And they were so successful, more and more people were coming, and the leaders of the synagogue became very jealous. So they began to spread rumors about Paul, and they finally attacked Paul, And he and Silas had to flee for their lives, and they went to Borea. When they got to Borea, he went and did the same thing all over again. And again, he was successful. So successful that the leaders back in Thessalonica heard about it, and they then came to Borea to try to kill him there. And so Paul and Silas had to flee, and they went to Athens. And then from Athens, they went to Corinth. But Paul kept thinking about this church, in Thessalonica. He worried about them. He wondered how they were doing. And it was Timothy who came to Corinth to tell Paul they're doing well. It is hard. It is hard. But they're doing well. So Paul then wrote a letter to the Thessalonians. And that's the letter from which we were reading this morning. The letter of 1 Thessalonians is the earliest writing we have in the New Testament. It was written before any of the four Gospels or any of the other letters in the Bible. We believe that 1 Thessalonians is the earliest writing from the Apostle Paul, around 50-ish. And I like the way that Paul starts it when he writes to those people he's been thinking about. We give thanks to God always for you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before God our Father your work of faith and your labor of love. We remember you before God, always mentioning you constantly to give thanks, to remember and to give thanks. Today is Memorial Sunday. Tomorrow is Memorial Day in our country. It's a day that's been set aside since about 1868, we believe. The first Memorial Day was held there in the north to honor Union soldiers in 1868. And then we believe it began happening in the south and it would finally all kind of come together for a national day. 
but they wanted to remember those who had fought and died for their country. We still do it today. That you and I remember those who have fought and paid the ultimate price so that we could be free. And i got to be honest with you. In spite of all the struggles going on in our country and all the things that are happening, I wouldn't choose to live anywhere else. I'm grateful to live in a country where we really are free to worship and, and be who we feel God has called us to be. It is right to take the time to remember and to give thanks. But in the church, this is Memorial Sunday. And it is the Sunday when we remember those who've been a part of this family of faith, who've also worked and sacrificed to help the kingdom grow. And it is right that we would remember and give thanks. And it's the day in which we're going to invite you in a few moments to come to the altar and light these candles as you think about those that you have loved and those who've loved you so that you remember them and you give thanks. When you do that, it does something to your soul. I want to continue on with the sermon series that Reverend Wendy Lambert started three weeks ago now entitled Snapshots. It's the whole idea if somebody took a snapshot, a picture of you, would they see the image of God? Would they see the characteristics of God being exhibited in your life? And that characteristic we wanted to look at today is gratitude. Are you a person of gratitude, full of thanksgiving? I want us to think about it this morning. There's two things that I want to say. First of all, understand that giving thanks makes you aware of all the blessings you've received. Some of you have heard of the name Sarah Ben Brethnock. It was a number of years ago now, Sarah was in one of those bad places in her life. To all the world, she said, if they looked at my life, they'd think, it's perfect. But she knew what was going on on the inside. She said, in my life, I was struggling. I was anxious. I was afraid. I was angry. I didn't like me. I wasn't happy with others. My life was a mess, even though to everybody else, it would look so good. Haven't you ever lived in that kind of place where you put on that mask? Everybody else thinks you're doing just great. But the truth of the matter is you're struggling deep inside. That's where she was. So what she decided to do was she said she wanted to change. She wanted her life to be better. And she made a commitment. She was going to sit down at the kitchen table and she was going to write down 100 things that she could be grateful for right now the way her life was. And she wasn't going to get up until she had written them down. And the more she thought about it, she became afraid she'd never get up. There wasn't a hundred things. But she decided to try. She sat down. Six and a half hours later, six pots of tea later, she had 150 things written down that she could be grateful for in her life right now the way it was. And when she picked the list up and began to read back and look at them, something struck her. It turned out, she said, not a one of them dealt with money. They all dealt with relationships. 
They all dealt with the love that was being shared and the love that was being received. She looked at all these things in her relationships. And then she wrote down and made this statement. I discovered that all I had was all I really needed. And all I really needed was an awareness of all that I had. All I had was all I really needed. And all I really needed was an awareness of all I had. It's easy to lose the awareness of all the blessings. What Sarah began to do was she decided that she was going to create a gratitude journal. Now you and I have talked about this before. Five years ago, many of us did it. It sure is easy to quit. She decided to be disciplined. She's going to have a gratitude journal. And every night when she went to bed, the last thing she did was she wrote down five things she was grateful for. Every day, five things. That was the last thing she thought about when she went to bed rather than what all do I lack? What all is wrong in my life? What am I unhappy about? Five things to be grateful for today. And as she began to do that, something began to be transformed in her life So much she sat down and wrote a book entitled Simple Abundance. There is abundance. It is simple. It became very popular. Many enjoyed reading it. And then one lady who enjoyed reading it was a lady named Oprah Winfrey. And once she liked reading it, everybody wanted to read it. But Sarah had discovered that secret. All that I had was really all that I needed. And all that I really needed was simply an awareness of all that I had. It is so hard for us to always remember how blessed we are. It is easy to forget, to become unaware. When you turn on the news right now, what have we been listening to for months, every night all about how our state is upside down a billion dollars and whose fault is it and where are we going to cut and who's going to be hurt? Lack, not abundance. We've been watching oil crash. Bankruptcy, bankruptcy, bankruptcy. I would never have dreamed that I would be getting up every day to flip on the financial news network to see the price of oil. I do. I know how much it matters. Now you listen to your politicians, it doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat or what they're running for. Every politician has to tell you how bad it is so they can tell you how they're going to fix it and make it better. So for another six months, you're going to hear how bad it is so they can try to tell you they're going to make it all right. It is easy to live in a spirit where there's a sense of lack and we are unhappy. To take the time to remember and to give thanks. When Paul wrote this letter to the Thessalonians, he was struggling. The Thessalonians were struggling. And he writes this letter. Do you know if you read it, it's only three pages. Only three pages in your Bible, the oldest writing we have in the New Testament, the letter to the Thessalonians. And yet in those three pages, four times Paul will talk about giving thanks and asking you to give thanks. In chapter 5, 
in 1 Thessalonians, verses 16 through 18. I encourage you to memorize them. Paul will say to the Thessalonians, Rejoice always. Pray constantly. In all circumstances, give thanks. For that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. In all circumstances, give thanks. For that is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Memorize that snapshot. It encourages us to give thanks and to be aware of the ways that we are blessed. It's what Paul was asking of the Thessalonians. Secondly, it's when you and I become aware that we've been blessed that opens our eyes to see the saints on whose shoulders we stand. It opens our eyes to see those who've opened a door for us and made our lives different because they have loved us and blessed us. It's important to remember and to give thanks. What I'd like to ask you, I'd like to ask us as a family of faith for the next week, we're focusing on gratitude, a snapshot of gratitude. What if next week you were to make a commitment that each day you're going to come up with one name, someone who's still alive, and each day next week you will either call them, email them, write them a note, Somebody who has blessed your life, say thank you. And every day, one name of somebody who's entered the kingdom of heaven. Somebody who has died, who worked and sacrificed and blessed you, lift them in prayer to God. Give thanks for them in your prayers. Remember them constantly, your prayers. One person each day. That'd give you two names. You know, we passed out a calendar to you back in January for the year of kindness, the Kindness Project. I flip my calendar every day. I love the sayings on them. I would encourage you on your calendar starting today, find, write two names. One that's alive, you're going to reach out to. One that is dead, you will lift to God. And then do two for Monday and two for Wednesday. This next seven days, Two names every day that you will remember and give thanks to live in that spirit of gratitude. If you don't have a church calendar we passed out, you can get one, ask for it, or, or do it whatever calendar you keep. But write it down. It'll do something for that spirit of gratitude where you are. You know, we know death ends a life, but not a relationship. And when you remember those who have entered the kingdom of heaven and give thanks, they will still touch your heart and lead your life. When you give thanks and remember. It's hard to believe that it was just last week, May the 20th. May the 20th, 1927, 89 years ago, one of the most famous events in history took place. Charles Lindbergh became the first person to fly solo across the Atlantic. He took off from New York. He would fly across the North Atlantic and ultimately land in Paris. It would take him 33 and a half hours to fly 3,600 miles. People thought that was impossible. 25 years before, we couldn't fly. 
But now, 25 years later, a dream was being dreamed of flying across the Atlantic. It was a group of businessmen in St. Louis who believed in this dream and put up the money. They were entrepreneurs. They were dreamers. They wanted things to happen. And so they built this airplane for Charles Lindbergh, and they called it the Spirit of St. Louis. In St. Louis, we're the dreamers. We're the ones who are going out to the frontier. Charles Lindbergh had grown up being a stunt pilot. He flew for the United States Army as a test pilot. He was a great flying person. He didn't sleep well the night before. When he got up on the morning of the 20th, he took off, and soon he was flying into clouds and weather. Do you know what he had to navigate from New York to Paris? A compass. No GPS, no other instruments, a compass. Flying in the clouds out over the ocean, ice began to form on the wings. He had to get down within 10 feet of the ocean for it to melt. And then he started fighting with hallucinations. He was so tired. He couldn't keep his eyes open. He struggled and struggled until suddenly out the window he saw fishing boats. And that told him he was near shore. There was a rush of adrenaline. It got him back going, and soon he saw Ireland. When he got to Ireland, he set his course as he had figured to head for Paris, and it was around 10 o'clock at night. He was seeing all these lights, and he couldn't figure it out. It was 150,000 people who had heard he had crossed the coastline, was headed for Paris. They all had come out to the airport. It was overwhelmed with people. And when Charles Lindbergh landed, they drug him out of the airplane, put him on their shoulders, and carried him off as a hero. Overnight, Charles Lindbergh became literally the most famous man in the world. Millions were by their radio listening to see if he made it. When he was there, this was big. He came back home. When he got back home, there was a ticker tape parade in New York. Four million people. They say it's the biggest ticker tape parade in history. Four million people turned out. From there to Washington, D.C. for another parade. And from there to St. Louis for another parade. And that was just the beginning. He would travel 1,000 miles in parade cars celebrating this accomplishment. Those first three he'd agreed to. He took care of those immediately. And in less than a month of when he got back, on June 22nd, without telling anybody, he got in the spirit of St. Louis and he flew to Dayton, Ohio. The reason he flew to Dayton, Ohio? He wanted to see Orville Wright. Wilbur had died. He didn't know Orville. He wanted to meet him. He didn't tell anybody. He landed at the airport. Orville was there to meet him. Put him in the car and said, I know the back roads. He tried to make sure they could get back to his house without anybody knowing. But the plane, Spirit of St. Louis, is sitting at the airport. Oh yeah, word began to spread. And they finally all came to the house, figured out where he was, surrounded the house by thousands he had to come out on the porch and acknowledge their presence and say thank you for all the accolades. That's not why he was there. He wasn't there for the praise and the accolades. He was there to meet Orville. 
You see, it had been less than 24 years ago, December 17, 1903. Orville and Wilbur flew a little plane for 12 seconds, 120 feet, the first flight in the history of the world. Charles Lindbergh was almost two years old. People still didn't think they'd ever fly the Atlantic. And yet 23 years later, such technology had happened, he had just done the impossible. Charles Lindbergh wanted to meet Orville Wright. They would remain good friends until Orville died over 20 years later. Charles Lindbergh wanted to be there because he knew on whose shoulders he stood. He knew who had opened the door for him. He remembered and he wanted to say thank you. It is good to come and to remember and to say thank you. Paul said, We give thanks to God always for you all, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, Remembering before our God and Father the work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If somebody were to take a snapshot of you, would they see the spirit of gratitude? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.